All right, take a seat, and if you have a Bible with you, which I hope you do, I want you to open it up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at uh, verses 40, I'm going to read verses 41 to 47, but we're going to actually focus in on verse 42. So it's going to be Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 41. Now let's back up to 40. Follow along as I read, here's what it says. And with many other words, he, meaning Peter, solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who were received the word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who were, had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and their possessions, and they were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and with sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all men. And the Lord was adding to their number, uh, day by day, those who were being saved. You know, the text that we have before us uh, today Uh, speaks of the first church, the very first church, established on the day of Pentecost as a result of the powerful preaching and Peter's sermon. That got me thinking about churches and raised some questions in my mind. What is the oldest church in the world today? Well, that would be the Etchmizian Cathedral located in the country of Armenia, built by King Teradatus III on a site which was a a pagan temple had stood, It's been in constant use since 301 A.D. What's the largest church in the world? Well, that's St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The first church was ordered, uh, put up by the Emperor Constantine in 318. It took 40 years to complete, but over the years and the centuries, it fell into disrepair until Pope Julius II commissioned a new church in 1506. He hired Michelangelo to um, design it. It took only 20 years to complete, but it was enormous in its cost. To finance it, the church sold indulgences. The Catholics at the time believed that buying these indulgences would lessen their time in purgatory after they died. There was a German monk named Martin Luther who was offended by this practice and decided he would publicly debate it with anyone who would come forward. He nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Church, and that began the Protestant Reformation. Let's go in another direction. What's the smallest church building in America? That would be the Cross Island Chapel in Oneida, New York. Built back in 1989, it measures three feet by six feet. So if you hold a wedding there, you probably are going to have to limit the guests. The tallest church. Well, that's a Lutheran church located in Baden-Württemberg in Germany. The Allminster Church has a spire which reaches 530 feet into the air. When it comes to recent constructions, the most expensive church in America was the Cathedral of Our Lady of Angels, built back in 2002. The Catholic Church at that time cost $189 million to put up. By the way, if you Google a picture of it, it's a hideous-looking thing. they got some postmodern architect to design it. It doesn't look like a church at all. It looks like an oversized condo on the beach. Well, perhaps the most impressive modern church building in America is the Crystal Cathedral. The pastor of the church who built it was televangelist and popular author Robert Schuller. 
They began it back in 1977 and finished it in three years. It cost $18 million to put up at that time, which is $59 million in today's equivalent. It's called the Crystal Cathedral because the building is constructed with over 10,000 rectangle panes of glass, mirror glass. And later they added a giant glass pane spire as well. Now the Crystal Cathedral ministry got into financial difficulties back in 2010 and filed bankruptcy. They ended up selling the building to the Diocese of Orange. Today it's a Catholic church. Now some churches are impressive and some are plain. Some meet multi-million dollar facilities, others in old sheds. One in our area called themselves the Chicken Coop Church. Their building was once used for that. What matters is not what the church looks like on the outside, but actually what goes on in the inside. For the church is not the building that you meet in, but the people who meet in the building. The correct way of saying it would be, here's the building, here's the steeple, open the doors and see the church, the people. When Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, he wasn't speaking of bricks and mortar. He was speaking of men and women, boys and girls, who he would call out from the world to be his people. Now, no church is perfect, But the one described here in this part of Acts chapter 2 does serve as a model for others to emulate. So today we want to look at this church to see how it's described and then compare modern churches, including our own, to see if we're following the same model. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Help us to see what's here that we might be pleasing to you in all that we do. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I intended to deal with this whole section today, but as I started writing my sermon, I realized that it was going to take at least two messages to expound the text. So I thought we'd focus in on just verse 42, where Luke mentions four ongoing activities which must be found in every church for it to be truly a Christian church. I have to say, sometimes pastors will labor in their ministry for many years without seeing much growth in the number of people who are coming. I mean, we're a small-town church, an hour and a half from the Twin Cities, We know that every year when the high school kids graduate and go off to college, it's very unlikely any of them are going to come back and settle down here afterwards. There aren't a whole lot of well-paying jobs. So we have to grow just to stay the same size in our church. Donald Carson was a biblical scholar and a seminary professor. He grew up in Quebec, Canada, where his father pastored a church in an overwhelmingly Catholic area. He said his dad was actually arrested on a number of occasions for disturbing the peace. They were trumped up charges. It was just the fact that he was preaching the gospel. I remember one of the conferences I went to, he mentioned that for the 28 out of the 30 years that his dad pastored in that area, he never saw the church rise to over more than 40 to 60 people attending. And yet, in the last two years, it went from 60 to 180. John Piper, when he became the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis in 1980, the congregation had an average attendance of 300 people. Uh, Most people who attended at the time were in their 60s and 70s. Uh, It stayed that same way for about 10 more years, and then in the early 90s, it exploded. And within a year and a half, two years, there were 1,600 people attending. They started another campus, and then a third campus. And before they split the churches, or the campuses apart to individual churches a few years ago, they had a weekly attendance of 4,600 people. Well, as impressive as that growth was, they never experienced anything like what happened in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Where we read in verse 41, so they, was, those who received his word were baptized, And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. I mean, talk about an organizational challenge. 3,000 brand new believers all entering the kingdom of God in your church at the same time. I mean, where do you start? What should you focus on? What should you do? Well, we're told what they did in verse 42. 
It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles, teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The first thing Luke mentions that these first Christians did was devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Remember what Jesus said? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4. Jesus spent three years teaching his disciples and preparing them for the time that they would continue his teaching after he was gone. Speaking to them shortly before he was arrested, he said, When uh, he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take my, of, of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that are the uh, Father's are mine. Therefore I said to you, he will take what is mine and will disclose it to you. The apostles were the authoritative spokesmen for Jesus. All the New Testament books were either written by or in connection with these men. And when we speak of the apostolic faith, we mean the truths that were taught by the apostles to the church. Jude in his epistle says this, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you, appealing to you, to contend earnestly for the faith that has been once handed down, and he means by the apostles, to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Satan is always trying to subvert the truth by denying it or distorting it. And he does so through fake Christians and false teachers who weasel their ways into positions of authority in churches and seminaries. Paul warned the Christians in Philippi, he said this, Brethren, Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you, and I tell you even now, weeping, that they're enemies of the cross. He means people in ministry whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Philippians 3, 17 to 19. And the only way that you can protect yourself from the devil's lies is to have a firm grip on God's truth revealed in the scriptures. The elders of a church have as their chief responsibility to preach and teach the word of God. And of course, that's the weakness in most modern evangelical churches. The word of God simply isn't being taught. In his two letters to his young protege, Timothy, Paul drove home the need to feed the people the word of God. In 1 Timothy 4, 6, he says this, in pointing out these things to the brethren, You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine which you've been following. Rather than giving people the meat of the word, many pastors today serve up spiritual junk food. Instead of providing biblical truth that they can sink their teeth in, they give their listeners cotton candy, which melts in their mouth, but it leaves their souls starving. And folks, that's exactly what's at stake in whether or not you're actually hearing the word of God presented on Sunday morning. It's your soul. Listen to the words of Paul as he goes on to speak to Timothy on the same matter. He says this, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. By the way, I used to read that all the time and say, yep, I'm a young guy, i got to make sure I do that. But I'm not a young guy anymore. That doesn't apply. (laughs) But rather in speech and conduct, love and faith and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift 
within you, which was bestowed on you by the prophetic utterance, by the laying on of the hands of the elders. Take pains in these things. Be absorbed in them so your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, you will ensure salvation both for you and for those who hear you. What he's saying is this, Timothy. If you don't get this right, the doctrine that we're supposed to be teaching, you're putting your soul at stake. You're putting other people's souls at stake. I have 1,300 books in my library. 700 of them. My wife's rolling her eyes. I'll bet it's more, she thinks. Of those, 700 of them are Bible commentaries. There's nothing more important to me, nor should there be anything more important to you, than to hear the word correctly interpreted and applied on Sunday morning. Now, the first of the seven laws of teachings is is this. The teacher must know the subject matter he intends to teach. But the second is just as important. The student must attend with interest the matter being taught. The most knowledgeable instructor, even if they're a highly skilled teacher, is not able to impart knowledge if the student's staring out the window daydreaming. These new converts in Jerusalem were not giving passing attention. We're told that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, in our church, we provide verse-by-verse preaching through whole books of the Bible, week in and week out. We have Sunday school classes with God-centered curriculum for all ages. Last quarter in the adult class, we focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We consider the biblical witness, the historical creeds, the heresies that have arisen in the church. This quarter, we're focusing on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We teach apologetics, eschatology, Christian worldview. In our home Bible study, we do a five-year overview of the scripture called God's Grand Design. The goal is to get people to understand and be able to trace through the entire scripture the storyline of redemption. We don't give you fluff and stuff. We give you solid truths revealed in the Bible, hard truths and comforting truths, truths that challenge and truths that reassure. Our goal for you is that you not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But that doesn't happen without you attending with interest the matter being taught. The elders of this church are committed to teaching the truth, but let me ask you a question. How committed are you to learning it? Would you say that you're as committed to learning the scripture as you are to succeeding at your job? What if you put in the same effort or lack of effort at your job that you do at mastering the scripture? Would you keep your job? And if we have to be honest, some would have to say they put in more effort and expend more energy in pursuing their hobbies than they do pursuing God. Let me give you several concrete steps you can take to help substantially increase your knowledge of God through the scripture. Here's the first one. Come to church and be a careful, active listener when the sermons are preached. If you're not here, you don't hear it. And if you're here and you're not paying attention, you don't hear it. You know what they used to have in Puritan times? (laughs) They had ushers walking around with long poles. And on one side of the pole, they would have a feather. And on the other side of the pole, they would have a knob. And they would walk back and forth, up and down, as the pastor's preaching. And their sermons were usually about an hour and a half to two, three hours. And if someone started to nod off like this, if it was a lady, they'd take the feather and tickle under her nose. If it was a guy, they'd poof, give him a good... I mean, if you, if you end up missing a sermon, go online and listen to it. 
I mean, we preach through whole books of the Bible. What happens if you miss chunks of it? Because eh, I just I wasn't there that day. Here's a second one. Stay for Sunday school if at all possible. I mean, you get more teaching. I had a guy, a pastor asked me one time, he said, do you guys have home Bibles? I said, yeah. He said, well, do you have Sunday school? He said, yeah. I said, well, why do you have both? I said, because it's more word of the word of God. I mean, that seems obvious. Here's a third one. Join one of the Bible studies and do your study ahead of time. You will more than double your learning if you actually do the study before you get there. Here's another one. Take time to read the scripture daily. That's why you put out those schedules for through the Bible in a year. Most of you have phones. You can listen to the Bible online. The word of God is called the sword of the spirit. As a Christian, new and old, you should be constantly improving your sword fighting skills. If you've been a believer for 10 years, you ought to be a spiritual Zorro in your ability to wield the sword. And no doubt these believers, since they were new, had a long way to go in developing that skill and obtaining that knowledge, but they were dedicated from the very beginning because we told that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The second thing we see in the text is, it says, and to fellowship. Now what is fellowship? Is that two fellows in a ship? Well, I suppose a couple of sailors in a boat could have fellowship. But the Greek word uh, is koinonia. And the Greek language scholar Bill Muntz uh, says of koinonia that it speaks, quote, of the close association between persons, emphasizing what is in common between them, by extension, participation, sharing, contribution, gift, the outcome of such close relationships. Koinonia is the supernatural relational connection that believers have and experience with each other when they're around each other. It's our spiritual family relationship. When God saved us, he adopted us into his family and we became the children of God. That also means we became brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, just like in your own biological family, you didn't have to decide to be related to your siblings. That relationship was established just by the fact that you're born into that family. But you did have to foster and maintain family relationships in order to get along and function. Now, sometimes when a parent dies, both parents die, the families don't stay together. I've known people who squabble over inheritances and as a result, the siblings never talk to each other again. They're still related, but they don't relate to each other. By the new birth, God has brought people into his family so that we have real, meaningful relationships with all other believers. But Christians need to foster those relationships. God has granted us fellowship with him and with other believers, but it's important that we maintain and deepen these relationships. I mean, writing to the church in Philippi, where there were a couple of women in the church who were at odds with each other, they couldn't get along. Paul had to mention them by name. Would you want to be in the eternal word of God as two women who couldn't get along? Mm, not good. But he wrote this to him. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection or compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, 1 to 5. I mean, how long would people, or how well would people get along in your family? How well would we get along in the church if each one of us regarded everyone else as more important than ourselves? But even after we're saved, we're still sinners. And sometimes we're insensitive and say dumb things and even mean things. I always say that being in a church is like dancing with a peg leg pirate. You're going to get your toes stepped on occasionally and it's going to hurt. Now, Paul was a realist 
about all of this. And that's why he told the Christians in Colossae, he said this, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against another, just as the Lord forgave you, you should do also. Beyond all of these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Colossians 3, 12 to 15. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's just another story. But you know, it shouldn't be another story. Look around, folks. You're going to spend eternity with these people. Shouldn't you make the effort to maintain the unity of the body even now? Remember reading about a little boy? I think he's about first, third grade, something like that. They were supposed to bring something for a show and tell that's green that they love. So he brought his younger sister in a green dress. Christians don't love things and use people. We love people and we use things. And we're called to love everyone, but especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. And honestly, the closer you get to God, the more you're going to love his other children. Well, these people are just learning how wonderful it was to be part of the family of God. Every Sunday service, every Bible study, every prayer gathering is another family reunion. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, 25, let us not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we say, see the day drawing near. That brings us to our third point, third thing they were doing, to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. Remember, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. But when he said that, he meant that metaphorically. Luke, when he speaks of breaking of bread, he's talking about it literally. Do you know which bread company sells the most loaves of bread in a year? It's Grupo Bimbo Company. It's a Mexican outfit that sells $15 billion worth of baked goods every year under 100 different brand names. Now, the word bimbo has a very negative connotation in American English, but it doesn't in Spanish, and the owner of the company actually came up with the name because he combined the two Disney movies, Dumbo and Bambi, which were the two favorite movies of his daughter. Well, in one survey they did back in 2020, they found out that 90% of Americans eat at least one loaf of bread each week. No wonder the bimbo gumbo company is doing so well. Well, and speaking of the Christians getting together to break bread, Luke probably has in mind two uh, early church practices, the love feasts and communion. Now, the modern equivalent of a, the ancient love feast is what we would call a potluck dinner. Uh, church members, like believers today, then, like today, would get together uh, af- for their services, and afterwards they'd have a meal together, food that each of the families brought. By the way, the luck part in potluck is because it isn't planned ahead of time. People just bring what they want, and you get what you get, and you don't throw a fit, as they say. (laughs) I recall one potluck at a church that Suzanne and I attended years ago. When we went through the line, I noticed that almost everybody that day brought a brown bean baked casserole of some sort. Mm. (laughs) Mmm. Now, the type of food you're going to get at a potluck varies from one region of the country to the other. If you're in the Midwest, like we are, you're going to find that many of these casseroles, or as we call them, hot dishes, will have cream of mushroom soup in them somewhere. I don't know what kind of food the women in the Jerusalem church brought to share, but evidently they did so with an open heart and willing hands, looking forward to eating with and talking 
to other believers in the church. You know, when I was a kid, there was a commercial they played on the radio for the Brothers Deli restaurant. Remember the jingle went something like this. Kibitz means na- talk, nosh means eat, nosh at the Brothers, a pure deli treat. Well, Christians today, like the early Christians, are supposed to kibitz and nosh together. We're supposed to laugh together and sometimes cry together, encourage one another, and build each other up. Connected with the love feasts were the communion services. We're going to have one after the service today. Instituted by Jesus on the night of Passover, before his arrest, he explained how through his death he was going to institute the new covenant promised in the Old Testament. It says in Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34, it says, I, God promises, I will put my law within them on their heart and I will write it. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. When the death angel saw the blood of the lamb on the doorways of the Israelites, he passed over. When John the Baptist saw Jesus out in the distance, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We memorialize this event every communion service. The last thing they were told is that they gave themselves to prayer. To prayer. Honestly, for many Christians, prayer is almost an afterthought. Well, I guess the only thing we can do now is pray. Luke listed in the ongoing activities last, but it certainly wasn't at the bottom as far as the priorities for the apostles in the early church. In chapter 6, we're going to see that in the early church, they had some growing pains. And after uh, a number of members of, of, of the church, some were Jewish and some were uh, Greek in their background speaking, and the widows of some were considered to be overlooked by some of the members in the church. So this kerfuffle erupted, and um, it was causing problems. And so they called the apostles together to deal with it. And it says this, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you, who you know to be filled with the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn over this responsibility to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. I remember speaking to a pastor one time. He told me that in his church, he was expected not only to do his regular duties, but also to maintain the church building, doing its repairs, and to mow the lawn every week. That's not his responsibility. The practical work in the church can be done by just about anybody. That pastor was to be like these disciples and give himself to prayer in the ministry of the word. And notice that prayer is even mentioned before the ministry of the word. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 1-4, he said, First of all, meaning as your top priority, Timothy, then I urge you that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But it's not just the leaders who are praying, because Paul wrote a few verses later, Therefore I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. Remember seeing that kids' TV Christmas program, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? You remember when Rudolph runs away and his father Donner goes out to look for him? Rudolph's mother wants to go with, but Donner says, no, this is man's work. Man's work? You're a reindeer! All Christians are supposed to pray But evidently, Paul thought it was particularly men's work. And yet, if you go to an average prayer meeting 
at an average evangelical church, are most of the people praying men or women? We have a number of prayer groups that meet regularly in our church, mostly men, men with men and women with women. Once a month we have men's prayer and fasting. I've had a couple of women over the years ask me why the women aren't invited. And I always say, no, this is man's work. Well, there are times when men need to pray with men as men and pray together we should. Whether it's men or women, boys or girls, all God's people, both individually and especially gathered together, need to pray. I have to tell you, prayers work. It requires discipline and dedication to become a prayer warrior, just like it takes practice and skill in learning how to wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And you've got to be devoted to it, sticking with it, persisting in it. When Dorothy finally arrived with her friends outside the Emerald City, seeking help from the wizard, she knocked on the door and pounded. And the guy came out and said, no, no one sees the wizard. You can't. Shuts the door. But what did they do? They kept pounding. You've got to keep on knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. I remember reading about a, a government a grant that was given to a psycholo- uh, psychological group to study children to find out why they tend to nag their parents so much. You know, asking the same thing again and again and again. According to their research, they found out that the reasons that kids nag their parents when they wanted something was because it works. Now listen to Jesus' words. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you if his son asked for a loaf, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a snake? Will he? If then you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Matthew 7, 7 to 11. You know, some churches hire consultants and employ marketing strategies to determine just how to go about attracting people into their church. How about we do what this church did? Devote ourselves continually to the teaching of the apostles, fellowship with other Christians, eating together and celebrating communion and praying with each other. It really isn't that complicated. We just need to do what God has called us to do to become the church that Christ intends us to be. And then leave the results to God. If you're involved already in these four activities in our church, I want to encourage you to continue and become even more disciplined in these activities. If you're not, I want to invite you to get involved. Because these are the disciplines that God uses to grow your faith in your own life. And if you will, and if you do, Not only will we be a model church, but you will be a model Christian. Honor Christ by being a dedicated member of his church. Let's pray. Our Father and God, it's the simple things that determine whether we grow as Christians. There is no substitute for discipline. For reading our Bibles and praying for coming to church, being in Bible study, for making the effort to learn your word, and what benefits it gives us. This book is the book by which we interpret all of life. How many people's lives are messed up because they didn't know the truth and therefore they could never apply it to their lives? 
Father and God, you've given us your word. We live in a time when every Christian can own a Bible. There were many centuries where that wasn't true. So we have less excuse than any before us. But we want to be the people who please you by doing the things that are necessary for us to grow in our faith as individuals and as a church. So bless us to that end. Give us all that we need. For we ask in Jesus' name.